and we will read verses 1 through 8, Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. May the Lord add his richest blessings to the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. I want you to hold your place there and I would like you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 2 for an Old Testament reading that I believe goes along with this. We live certainly in an uncertain day and age. We live in a day and age where things seem to be controlled. The chairman of the of the, the federal bank sneezes in the morning, has a cup of coffee, drinks the wrong flavor, and the interest rate goes up or down. <laughs> Somebody doesn't like their borders, their land borders, and the next thing you know, we're having another war. The governments of this world want to fight. And ultimately, part of the reason why these fights take place, the reason why things transpire in many countries, especially places like Africa and Asia, is because ultimately we are not content with where God has placed us. We're not content with what God has given us. Everybody has to have more. Everybody wants what they can't have. And overarching all of this is the puppeteer who behind the strings is actually manipulating the strings of the world. And this is the evil one who thinks he's going to win, but he's not going to win. He will never win because the final chapter has already been written. King Jesus comes down and this time he will not come as a lamb, a meek lamb. He will come as the lion of Judah and he will come roaring out of his mouth. He will speak one word and all the nations of the earth will be destroyed. Fully approximately 1,050 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, King David, of whom his ancestry would include the Lord Jesus Christ, we find these words in Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens, what does your version say? Laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. I'm amazed we were talking about this earlier this week when we look at all of the religions in the world it doesn't matter what denomination or, or faith group or cult or whatever, but every one of them have one thing in common, and that is that they desire to be able to overrule God. Every one of them. You see, we look at the difference between biblical Christianity and the religions of the world. The religions of the world take the little parts of God that they like, dump the rest of them, and then turn around and say that salvation is the way I want it to be. As we were talking about this one video that we watched earlier, my dad and I earlier this week, it was interesting that out of all of the, the in India, for example, there are 8 million named gods. 8 million. Now, either all of those have a way to be able to take us to heaven or to take us to nirvana or to take us into a sublime, blissful eternity, or they are all liars. And on the other hand, either the Lord Jesus Christ, when he spoke and said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Either he was telling the truth or he was a liar. And if he is telling the truth, that means that all the religions of the world are nothing but lies. That's it. So when we look at a passage like Psalm chapter 2, and then we go to the passage in Revelation chapter 6, and in my mind, I cannot begin to imagine what it would be like for the Lamb of God as he is seated on the throne, and, 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 and as he is given this scroll... And if you remember, John even weeps and he says, who is even worthy to open the scroll? It was in chapter 5, go back to Revelation. 
It was in chapter 5 that we saw the introduction of the scroll on which had been placed these seven seals. So I, I wish I should have remembered I was going to have a picture up on the screen to be able to show you. But if you can imagine like a parchment scroll, it would have been a big roll, probably one similar to what you see in, uh, in synagogues today if you were to look online, but it would have been a big massive scroll. And along the edge of that, the trailing edge of that, there would have been seven seals. The more seals that were on the scroll, the more important it was. Of course, in the Bible, we have seven, which is often referred to as the number of perfection or of completion. But John sees a mighty angel and his cries, the cries of the angel ring throughout all of heaven as he asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Do you feel qualified? Do I feel qualified? Do, do, do the kings of the earth, they, they think they're qualified to be able to open the seals? They don't have the strength. They don't have the power or the authority to be able to open these seals, much less to even hold the scroll. And the scene becomes so upsetting to the beloved apostle as he weeps, he senses the importance of what is taking place here. And with all that had taken place in John's long life, he's probably about 94, 95 years old at this point. It's understandable that he's rightly upset. He was probably there shortly after John the Baptist points out across those hills of Judea as the Lord Jesus Christ comes across the hill and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was there when the Lord Jesus Christ called the other disciples to be with him, to, to serve with him. He was there as they laid along the side of the road, as they walked the dusty trails of Samaria and Judea and also into Samaria itself. He would have been there at the, when the woman at the well was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ and he tells her, you are right. The person you're married to now is not your husband. Then besides that, you've had five others. The woman drops her pot, she runs into the city and she tells the people, come and hear a man who told me everything that I have ever done. Did he really tell her every single thing that she had ever done? No, what he did was he confronted her where it mattered the most, and that was her heart. John probably would have been there or very close when Nicodemus comes, this religious leader, is a, 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 religious leader of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus at night, and as he comes, maybe the disciples are listening, and they're overhearing the conversation, and Nicodemus, this proud man, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, says, what must I do? Jesus says, you must be born again. How is this possible? Do I need to enter into my mother's womb again? And Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. Do you really not understand? You, a teacher of the Jews? How can you be a leader and a teacher of the Jews if you don't understand? You can't tell your people. He would have been there, John would have been there at the Mount of Transfiguration as they go up, him, Peter, James, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they stand on that mountain, the glory comes down from heaven and overshadows Jesus Christ. He listens, probably because he didn't have anything to say or maybe because he wasn't sure what to say. Peter speaks up for them and says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Why don't we build three tabernacles, one for each of you? 
and the glory of the Lord overshadows them, and a voice from heaven says, Hear my son. We are given a little bit of a glimpse when Peter talks in, in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and he says, We were there, we beheld him, we saw. John not only saw, but he's given this wonderful vision. We heard when we concluded in chapter 5, the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing a song extolling the praise of the Lamb. Think about what it's like to sing it as well with my soul this morning. What what if we were twice this size? What if if there were a thousand of us meeting together and singing? What What if all the true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ were to get together and to be able to sing with perfect voices, with no sin, with no distractions, centered around the Son of God as he sits rightfully on his throne? Now you'll begin to have a little bit of an understanding of what eternity is like. These creatures and the elders not only announce that he is worthy to open the scroll, but that the grace of God has been extended to mankind in that some from every tribe, language, people, and nation have been ransomed to God. Just a little plug when it comes to missions. You know, we as a church, I'm not talking about just Yellowstone, I'm talking about the church in general of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have done a very poor job at reaching the world. 2,000 years of church history and there are still over one-third of the world's population that has never heard the name Jesus Christ. That's a miserable failure. But despite our lack of faith, despite our lack of perseverance, despite maybe the lack of, of us being willing to work hard and evangelizing and doing what we can to evangelize the lost, God makes it very clear to the Apostle John that there will be some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You see, God will still accomplish his work whether you and I do it or not. He may use somebody else to do it. Do you remember what he said in the New Testament when he was speaking and they were trying to tell him to shut the disciples up? He says if these disciples weren't to speak, even the rocks would cry out. When you look through the book of Revelation and see the things that are going to transpire, they're going to be things that, that take place that, that just absolutely boggle the mind. And I'm not talking about putting any kind of spin on it, simply taking what the word of God has to say. The eagle that flies across the heavens proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The two witnesses that show up. However all of that ends up transpiring. This universal anthem that began with the elders and the creatures, it begins to swell as all of these creatures are joined first by a myriad of angels in verse 12 and then by an innumerable host in verse 13. That's us. Listen to Revelation 5, verse 12 and 13. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain. This is why he's been given a name which is above every name. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. But the glorious song of the Lamb also conveys a warning. Very solemn warning. 
You see, the world is far from ready for what is about to take place in this world. Whatever time frame that may be, we do not know. I'd like to believe that he will return and establish his forever kingdom here in this world in my lifetime. I mean, are are any of you seriously looking forward to ending up in a nursing home? Or dying? Being laid out at your best in a casket? I'm not. Every time we have to go to a funeral, it is simply a reminder of the curse of sin that is here in this earth. John's word usage here is that the lamb is worthy to open its seals. This isn't like the opening of a door. This is a deliberate breaking open of what has long been sealed. Several Old Testament prophets spoke of this coming day of judgment, including these solemn words from Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. small handful of you know the story when I pastored in California. I had been there for about six weeks, and we sat down at an elders meeting. There were six of us uh, elders. I was the only teaching elder. And one of the men who was a multimillionaire, it was the only reason that he had been selected to be an elder. It wasn't because he had any spirituality whatsoever, which I was to find out. And this was by his own admission and the admission of the other elders reached over and he thumped my Bible. We were in a meeting and we were talking and one of them said, why do you have to keep telling people they're dying and going to hell without Jesus? This isn't a Bible church. And this guy doesn't say much and he finally reaches across and he thumps my Bible and he says, I've never personally read that book. He said, but if what you're saying, if what you said yesterday in service is true, I was actually in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, and if what you're saying is true, that if we die apart from Jesus Christ, that we will go straight to hell. He says, I can tell you right now, my family's going to be there and I'd rather go with them and have a party. When the wrath of the Lamb is poured out upon this world, there will be no party. There will be no party in eternity for the lost. To be separated from the very fellowship of God for all of eternity will be miserable. To know that you will be there alone, to be there apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, to be there apart from the fellowship, to be in darkness in which you will burn forever and ever should be enough to be able to scare you. But the reality is this, when Jesus Christ saves us, he doesn't save us from hell, he saves us from the wrath of the Father. Being able to escape hell is one of the many spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. If you think that you have been saved and you've got your ticket punched on the glory train so that you can ride through life and then eventually find yourself in heaven having not lived, as Dad said this morning in James chapter 1, and not been a doer of the word, my friend, you have been deluded. 
We have a responsibility. And, and you may say, well, why can't we hear nice, fluffy messages? Because nice, fluffy messages are not going to change our lives. Right. I was listening to a message this last week as I was preparing. I've actually been preparing Revelation 6 for quite some time. And as I was going through this, I was reminded that the first person that I have to preach to is myself. I have to be reminded constantly that there is a solemn responsibility for any minister of the gospel to be able to stand in front of their class, to be able to stand in front of a congregation and to warn them of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. But to let you know, the answer is not more rules. The answer is pleading to God for mercy. As we said in the first part of Revelation, we don't want to speculate on the what-ifs here. Where the Bible is clear, we want it to be our guide. Here we find that Christ prepares to begin the judgments found in the scroll. For not just 2,000 years of church history, but if you look back and you look back to the children of Israel, uh, this, this little, small, insignificant tribe, did they always follow God? Not a chance. More times than not, they were doing what they shouldn't have been doing. Do you remember what happens when God sends judgment? Let me remind you of the flood. Let me remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me remind you what happened when the children of Israel rebelled against God. They spoke against God's word. The ground opened up and tens of thousands of them were swallowed alive. I have had people tell me throughout my ministry, when I get to God, I'm going to hold God accountable. No, you're not. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth as the next actors appear on God's stage, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Revelation 6, let's look at verse 1. Each of these four beasts give a command and it serves, I believe, as a notice of something that is about to happen. It serves as a warning. The verb phrase here is used as one person noted. It is a person who is about to do something in a place and must come forth. In other words, while these four creatures are announcing the bad news, they do so at the command of the lamb. They don't do it on their own. God is the one that gives the authority to these creatures to be able to come forth and again, woe to the world for what is about to take place. This first one is a white horse. It represents a false peace. Now there are some who believe, and I look back at it as I was doing some more reading, there are some who believe that this is actually the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some who believe that it is the Antichrist. Christ spoke of this particular time, before we look and see who this is, Christ spoke of this time in the Olivet Discourse found in Matthew chapter 24. And he reminds his disciples in verse 4 and 5, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. But they will lead many astray. I believe this first writer is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you disagree with me, you're welcome to come up and talk to me afterwards. But here are some distinct differences, and I believe the reason why this 
cannot be the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a distinct difference between this person and the one found in both Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 19. There are three things that we find here. He was given a bow, a crown, and he was called to conquer. The bow here, I believe, is a representation of what is going to take place on the earth during this final time, whatever amount of time this is. And it may not actually be a real person, but it's to show the rapid movement of the fake peace. Look at Israel today. There are many times we open up the, uh, our newspaper or we open up the internet. Newspaper, that's for you older folks. You know what that is like I do. Um, uh, but when you take the news and you open it up and Israel is now giving away another piece of land or they're giving away whatever it may be, thinking that they are going to be granted some form of peace. The problem is that their trust is in the peace that is offered by a fragile, futile, godless government around the world. Because there will be no lasting peace until the Prince of Peace comes. I believe this is one of the reasons we are told in Psalm 127, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So he's given not only a bow, but he's also given a crown. This is a victor's crown or a Stephanos versus the Lord Jesus Christ who in chapter 1 and in chapter 19, both times we find he wears many royal diadems. Do you remember what it says one day when we stand before him? All will cast their crowns before him. Every knee will bow of things in heaven and earth and under the earth. Not only a crown, but he is sent forth to conquer. You see, this is one of the reasons why I don't believe we see the Lord Jesus Christ here, because the Lord Jesus Christ has already conquered. He has already won the victory over death, hell, and the grave. This person is actually sent out with a false peace to persuade many into a false sense of security. Does the world long to have peace? Sure they do. There is no country in the world. And if you were to go and talk, when we were in Liberia, they had gone through 14 years of civil war. Every one of them just wanted it to be over. But after a while, it just starts right back up again. The world will be more easily deceived than when Hitler came to power in 1933 in Nazi Germany. And then the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain goes over, meets with Hitler and his staff, comes back in 1938, gets off the plane. He has no sooner stepped on British soil when he waves a worthless treaty and he says, peace for our time. You all, if you're readers of history, you know what happened in World War II in which approximately 60, anywhere between 60 and 80 million people died. Some peace. The second seal in verse 3 and 4. This is a bright red horse and it represents war. Again, the correlation, listen to Matthew chapter 24, verse 6 and 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And here we have the second rider. 
at some point, probably in the second half of this tribulation or this great tribulation period, I believe that the peace that ruled the world, this, even though it's a fake peace, will be fully taken away. I believe that there will be people who will look around and they'll see plenty. They'll see food. They'll see an economic surge. They'll see all of these wonderful things that are taking place. And whoever it is that is leading all of this, they're going to say, oh, wow, what a great guy. Not only though, when this war takes place, not only will nation turn against nation, but family will turn against their own. And I believe that this is the wrath of Satan which is allowed, the wrath of the world against those who are true believers or those who would seek to love God being poured out against the world, even though it is still under the full control of God who is sovereign. War is a horrible thing. And if you have ever served in a battlefield or a place where you have been given the responsibility of holding a weapon and having to fire it against the enemy, uh, I can assure you that if it gets right down to it, you would have to say, you don't kill that person out of hatred. You don't know them personally. We do it because that is what our government expects. That is what soldiers are taught to do, is to take the life of the enemy before they take ours. But can you imagine a world where everybody in the world is set one against another? Right now, and I pulled up some statistics for this message, right now there are over 2 billion, that's one-fourth, 25% of the world that is currently affected by war and conflict. There are approximately 30 major conflicts and another 40 plus minor conflicts that are going on in the world today out of a people that are one people. You know, if you've never traveled across the world or traveled to another place, uh, you would quickly realize though as you travel that people are people no matter where you go. There are no Martians. There's nobody from Vulcan. We are all one people made and created by God, made in His image. But this rider is going to be given a great sword. This sword is a short weapon that was used mainly by the Roman military and by assassins. It was called a machaira. Now we can understand that this Antichrist, this one who will come in the name of Christ, he will seek to destroy governments and it will probably be that through this whole country attacks and the assassination of world leaders. Whoever this person is, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 reminds us that the day of the Lord will not come and it will not come to a conclusion until there are two things that happen. What are they? Number one, the great apostasy within the church and number two, the revealing of the man of sin or the Antichrist. This person will seek to be in control and nobody will stand in his way. Some of the ludicrous things that people will believe in are convinced of, it will happen on a mass scale. For example, anybody remember Heaven's Gate? Yeah, those of you who are older would. Uh, how, many, how many of you remember Jim Jones and Georgetown, Guianas, South America? Yeah. 
You see, when the evil one comes and through his spokesperson, whoever this is, the Antichrist, I believe that he will seek to cloud the minds of the people with affluence. He will try to control the economy to such a point that you will take your mind off of, or those who are here will take their mind off of God. I remember when the Iron Curtain fell, 1989. I can remember major events that took place. Do you remember when the Berlin Wall came down? And we had some pastors who came over from Romania to one of the churches where we were at at the time. This was back when Violet and I were first married. And um, they were asked, what is it that you like or don't like? And they were sharing with us the persecution and all the things that took place. And in a very short time, some of those same pastors were coming back and saying, don't send us American Christianity. Send us the Bible. They said, that's what we went to prison for. That's what many of us were willing to die for. Was the name and the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not so that we could have pop music and so that our young people would be distracted in churches. The third seal. Verse 5 and 6. Again, we go back to Matthew chapter 24. Listen to verse 7 and 8. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, I hope this one is as much of a shock to you as it was to me. Currently, there are 195 countries in this world, this little tiny blue planet. It's made up of 78% water. And on that, we are getting ready to cross. This year, we will cross the threshold and we will have 8 billion living people. That's billion with a B. But out of those 195 countries, currently in January of 2023, 49 of them, or more than 25% of the world, currently is dealing with famine. This accounts for approximately 50 million people or the entire population of California, Oregon, and Washington. That's just to put it into a little bit of perspective about how many people we're actually dealing with here. And when this black horse comes, there will be famine unlike anything else. Uh, listen, to, listen to this. In World War II, a person's weekly ration, think about the things that you and I eat. A person's weekly ration during World War II was one egg. This is for an entire week. Two ounces of tea or butter. One ounce of cheese. By the way, that's a piece about that size. Eight ounces or one cup of sugar. Four ounces of bacon and four ounces of margarine. By the end of World War II, it cost... 25% of your daily wage to buy an egg. Brother Al was talking about this when we were going through the book of Daniel, or he was going through the book of Daniel. You see, this third writer, when he comes, it, there will be rationing, I believe, unlike anything that we have previously seen in Earth's history. You see, we, we have 
blessings. I, I remember in this one church that we were at where these same pastors from Romania came over, I remember going up and asking them what was the most shocking thing that they had seen when they came to America. And one of the pastors, they didn't want to say, they didn't want to speak, and I said, seriously, I would like to know what, what's shocking to you. And the one pastor said, well, come with me and I'll show you what's most shocking. We actually were having dinner on the grounds at the church. There was probably, I don't know, 250, 300 people in the church. And we walked over to the end of the kitchen area where we were all outside underneath tents. And there were big uh, trash receptacles there. And we looked in there and he pointed it out. And he said, that is the most shocking thing about what I see in Christian churches in America. He said, we would have given anything to be able to feed our family what you throw away. In the midst of all of this, though, we were talking, I was, I thought, Bruce and Patricia, I was talking with them this morning. And there will come a time when it doesn't matter what the world is doing. It doesn't matter whether everybody thinks it's good or not. There's going to be a voice from heaven, and that's what we find in the middle of this verse 5 and 6. There is a voice that speaks, and this is the voice of God. And it is a warning to the world. There will be no question that this judgment is coming from God. Do you remember what happened with the Old Testament, Janus and Jambres? Do you remember they stood in Pharaoh's court? Aaron threw his rod down. They threw their rods down. Aaron did something. The magicians did something. And after a while, it got to the point where the magicians could not stand before Aaron or stand before Pharaoh because they realized that the judgments were from God. They couldn't pull sleight of hand tricks anymore. And the reason that this judgment will be sent is because of the wicked hearts of the world and because of their hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a high price to pay for food. A day's wage, we are told, will be a day of food for one person. Now those of you who have teenagers who have had teenagers, you will know that it's almost impossible to keep a bottomless pit fed. We in America have been so blessed by God. We have so much. We can go into the store and we can try to stand there for 30 minutes trying to decide which one of 50 different types of cereals we want to eat. But there will come a time when we will struggle, or those who are here on this earth will struggle, and there will be some who will be able to take care of themselves maybe with a meal a day. There will be some who will pay a little bit more and they will have a lesser nutritional meal. This is what he's speaking about here versus the, the wheat versus the barley. It won't be as healthy, but it will probably help take care of a few more people. Can you really imagine what it's going to be like yet? You see, because the fourth seal makes it even worse. A pale horse, death. This word here is the Greek word for ashen or pale, and it refers to a sickly, pale, yellow-green color. I won't go into any descriptions, but 
having been in the funeral industry, I can tell you that this is the color of a body in a state of decomposition. Death is going to become so commonplace. Listen to me. When I was in the industry, I saw so much waste. I saw so much money that was spent. And people would spend, on average, in America, the average funeral now costs about $12,000 to put somebody in the ground. We dress them up. We put flowers in the funeral home. We make them smell good. We put lipstick on them. We put makeup on them. And people come by and they file by and look at the casket in the front of the church and they say, oh, they just look like they're asleep. Oh, they look so peaceful. My friend, they're dead. And that's because death comes to every one of us. But here in America, we have dressed up death so, so well that we're not afraid of it anymore. Go to a third world country where a person dies and they go out into eternity without Christ. Listen to the screams. When those people realize they have no hope. Listen to them wail for their loved ones. Listen to them beat themselves and cut themselves because they hope some God is listening. But here we make death look good. People aren't afraid to die anymore. Oh, if only people would realize that when they die, they're going to face the one who gave them life in the first place. You better be ready. Listen to this quote. Long ago, our Creator warned that if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 28, to observe carefully all His commandments and His statutes, the Lord will make the plagues cling to you. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fear, with inflammation, from which you cannot be healed. One commentator noted this about death. He is the king of terrors, the pestilence. It is death in his empire, death reigning over a place or a nation, death on horseback, marching about and making fresh conquests every hour. If you're a reader of history, you will know when the plague or pestilence come, what it does to a nation. Another author said this, another commentary, quote, Hell is a state of eternal misery to all those who die in their sins. And in times of such a general destruction, multitudes go down unprepared into the valley of destruction. It is an awful thought and enough to make the whole world to tremble that eternal damnation immediately follows upon the death of an impenitent or an unrepentant sinner. Finally, the destruction. The destruction is given the authority by God. These plagues which will come from God will pale in comparison to the complete and total destruction of the wicked in the lake of fire. You see, if you think as the saying goes that it will be hell here on earth, you haven't seen anything yet. 
And God will be right. He will be just in his pronouncing a punishment against a world that hated his son. We're told here that they will be given authority over the fourth of the earth. This is an estimated, or there was an estimated 30 million people that died in the great influenza epidemic of 1918 to 1919. Now listen to this. That was more than three times the estimated eight and a half million soldiers that died in World War I. In addition, several million more died at that time in an outbreak of typhus in Russia, Poland, and Romania. In a world that is ravaged by war and famine, it is inevitable that disease will be spread. They will be given weapons to kill, as Revelation 6 verse 8 says, with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Do you remember what started or what spread the bubonic plague or the black plague in Europe? Rats. My friend, if you have missed everything else before now, I want you to know that the coming time of judgment is not party time. I don't rejoice in my heart or in my soul of the things that are going to take place because it's going to affect some of my family just like it is yours. It's going to affect the lost, many of whom, or all of whom, are on the broad road of destruction to hell. The end of Revelation chapter 6, if you think all of this is a hoax, let me tell you what the vision that John had prophesied The end of chapter 6 reminds those who are not true believers that they will even wish that the mountains and rocks could fall on them and kill them. They will try to commit suicide to escape from the wrath of God. And the Bible says they they will not be able to escape death. I'll leave you with this last verse this morning. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 says this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't think we can see Revelation chapter 6 any other way than what we have presented this morning. We can't present any sensationalism. We we can't present all the what-ifs. We can't pretend that this might happen or that might happen. All the things, all the books that are written about the end times. I think most of them have missed it. Because the real issue isn't all the things or how they actually happen. It will be the fact that God's wrath is coming. This, my friend, is why we present the gospel the way that we do. Because I know it's coming. I know what Jesus Christ did for me. I know what he saved me from. And if you're a true believer here this morning, you know what he saved you from. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, again, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We need to be prepared because we don't know when it's coming. It may be today, maybe tomorrow that you take your last breath. 
Over this last week, 1.2 million people went out into eternity. My friend, you should be thankful before God this morning that you weren't one of them. To be thankful that God in His mercy and His grace still has allowed you to come in His sovereignty. You're not here by mistake. And to come and to take every single breath. I have read of plenty of stories and accounts where even pastors have stood in the pulpit, they've shared the gospel one more time and have collapsed and had a heart attack and died right there in front of the people. There have been plenty of church services where ambulances have had to be called to be able to take care of the people who passed away in the congregation. What if it was your turn today? Are you ready to meet God? And if you're not, I call on you to plead with him for mercy. That he will be gracious to you. And that you will see that from all of eternity, God set his love upon you. And not only does he save you from your sins, but he also promises that he will come back again. And he's coming back for you and I. Are you ready? Let's stand together. Mm-hmm.